Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. We are off for a week this summer, off with the kids, but we wanted to keep the podcast feed going for you with some of my favorite episodes from the archives. Today, love, love, love to bring you my conversation with Bridget Fetisi. Oh, epic. It was from episode 44. She's the host of Walk-In's Welcome and Dumpster Fire, and she recently had her first baby. Well, back when I first talked to her back in December 2020, she revealed to me and to the world for the first time that she was married. Love the fact that she broke it on our show. It was a funny, it was emotional, and it was an inspiring conversation on victimhood and entitlement, drug abuse, and recovery, overcoming some deep trauma, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did the first time. You and I have never spoken before, but we've corresponded on Twitter and I'm a big, big fan of yours. I think you are one of the funniest people, but like most great comedians, one of the most clever and smart. It's a great combo Uh and it's why comedians are so fun to spend time with, at least virtual time in my case. Um, Do you do you know you're funny? Like, do you know that about yourself? Um, That's a great question. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot coming from you. I I really respect your work and your just work ethic and just your whole vibe, really. <laughs> um, so I I don't know that I I grew up in an Irish Catholic very big family, and I always joke that my upbringing was like a roast battle. You kind of had to be able to tell jokes and make fun of yourself in order to survive or you would just be demolished by it was a huge family so i i don't know that it was something that i ever thought i was as much as just a survival mechanism growing up and then it became a coping mechanism as my life progressed and there were some more challenging experiences i de- definitely default to humor so then it just it was it, it as far as stand up goes it was something i never considered i could do it seemed like something that just really crazy brilliant men could do mhm so it's so funny because i'm noticing a theme uh, you're now the third guest i've had on who has specifically cited her irish catholic background as the reason <laughs> as the reason she's so outspoken and sort of out there first was piers morgan then there was andrew sullivan now there's you i too am irish catholic so i don't know if there's like a theme emerging here but um it bodes well for my little irish catholic Presbyterian Scottish Dutch children, I guess, maybe. I'm not sure which side wins out. We were very, very feisty and raised to be very independent. And one of the things it's I was just 
I've been thinking a lot about my grandfather and grandmother on that and my dad's side a lot. And they were just so resilient and funny. And my grandmother never really took anything too seriously. They were just so optimistic. And it was, it, it is that very Irish, you know, everybody's telling jokes around a funeral and getting drunk and awake. It's just that very, that culture of, of laughing through your troubles. And I'm very grateful that I was raised with that because I don't, I don't know how I would have got through. I, I remember I was the kind of class clown when I was in rehab for lack of a better word. And I was just trying to keep everything light and uplifting because it was so heavy, obviously, when I was in a treatment facility. And that's really saved me that and being able to write. I think those those two things. But that I think that Irish Catholic thing is definitely I always said I was a recovering Catholic in many ways I've reclaimed claimed some of that, but it it is that just funny way to view the world in the mm-hmm. worst calamities. I I was shown this um it was like one of those memes online that somebody forwarded uh, with the Lucky Charms box on the front of it. And it said something like the Irish protest for the removal of the leprechaun uh, because it's offensive. And the bottom says, just kidding. The Irish aren't, aren't offended by jack shit. And it's, <laughs> we do the offending. We're not the, we don't, we don't get offended. That's been my experience at least. And I prefer it that way. I mean, I do think it's hard to offend an Irish person. I think there's something in the, in the makeup that just makes them tougher, more like, I don't really give a shit. And I don't know, just quicker to resort to humor. You're right. As a coping mechanism or just a bridge out of a difficult situation. I was raised to, to believe that feeling the need to be offended was really just a way of feeling self-important. And it was, a you know, constantly looking for ways to be offended. It, It really, it drives home this idea that you're you're thinking very highly of yourself or your opinion. And there is that whole in my whole family, like, oh, come on, Bridge, what are you, what are you going to, what are you going to cry about it? You know, there's mm-hmm. that, there is That's that so culture. True. I never like, considered that. You're <laughs> right. It's more like, how many times have I told you that you're not special? <laughs> it's yeah. like, we've gone over this, Bridget. <laughs> yeah. There's a, that, I, I, you know, it has a kind of, my, my grandmother came from a very, she was that kind of came from the line of the stoic Irish women. And my dad tells a story about being at his maternal grandmother's funeral. And one of the legends in our family was just that my grandmother prided herself on really only having cried twice in her life. I don't know that this was is necessarily a healthy thing, but <laughs> it was just kind of the, you know, you talk, we think a lot about the legends that were brought up within our own family story, those stories that get passed down. And she, my dad was sitting next to her in the funeral and he was pretty young and he started tearing up and she squeezed his hand so hard that it hurt. And he said, no, and she said, no tears. We don't cry. And that was very much there is, and there is just that kind of East coast. I was raised in, um, every summer going to Rhode Island, very blue collar family. Like, Oh, you're going to cry about it. It was, Oh, oh, you're going to cry about it. My dad's one of 10. It was, you couldn't, it was very hard to be a sensitive empath and, in our family. You were, you were mocked mercilessly. I always give my mom a hard time. She's Italian. So it's, that's also a feisty side. And uh, yeah. she used to say, now it was the seventies, but she used to say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> like, oh shit. <laughs> but yeah. it was a different time too. I and mean, it is in part generational. I think, you know, that 
these kids today, the really youngins, they're, I don't know, they're so quick to be offended. And I think, I think back to, you know, my own upbringing where we laughed at everything. I can't remember a time when anybody got offended. We mocked each other mercilessly. It was a Mm -hmm. form of affection. And it's not that I loved every piece of it, but it does give you a, a, as you said, a coping mechanism for when bad things happen to you in life. If humor is a go-to, it really can be a soothing balm. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this idea I was raised with, which seems to have gone out of fashion, that life isn't fair. That was just, I'm the oldest of five. So there was constantly bickering amongst the siblings and, and fighting over this or that. And the refrain growing up was, yeah, well, life isn't fair. And as much as I couldn't stand that. It was, it's, I'm again, glad that that was kind of drilled into me. My mother too is Italian and she's very feisty in that way. And, and it was, my grandmother used to say, go play in traffic. You know, we were being bad. (laughs) (laughs) She'd be like, go play in traffic. And this is a woman who lived through the depression and lived through the war and had 10 children. And all of them miraculously made it through their childhood. She lost one of her twins. I think that was one of the only times she cried in, in childbirth. And she was just even at her funeral, she had very specific instructions and she said, do not cry. I've lived an amazing <laughs> life. It was, you know, even, even from beyond the grave, she's telling us not to cry. She, she wanted it to be a celebration and of her life. Yes. And she was always so grounded in optimism and gratitude. And I am, I, as I get older, appreciate that more and more because life they just even reading my grandfather's letter, he said he was 21 years old and he had this perspective of, well, this is life. Humanity's always been this way. Maybe it's my time. Perhaps I'll get through. We have to. It's all it, life is weird, but it's also great and fun. And just having that perspective at such a young age is it's invaluable. It's mm-hmm. I don't my biggest issue with the culture and where I feel the most disconnected is where does a lot of the you know, there's this idea in recovery of playing the tape forward. Where does the kind of victimhood mentality of assuming to always be offended, assuming that you're a victim, where does that get you ultimately? The pride, the pride in claiming it. Mm. Right. But I mean, they, so they do it. They, they do it even when it's not true because they think there's a social status attached to victimhood. And they're right, sadly, with a with a certain contingent. Of course. And that is true, except on, I guess, a more philosophical or spiritual level or just an internal level, it would be the same as saying, oh, money's going to fix your problems or money will fix your depression or go if you, you know, any kind of outward searching for status, I feel leaves us empty on the inside. Ultimately, this is and this is I can only speak for myself, but this has been my experience, whether I'm reaching for um, a substance or a person or a, a, a status of being perpetually offended or a victim, it's still not grounded in self-esteem, resilience, knowing that I'm capable of taking care of myself. Those have been some of getting out of entitlement. These have been lessons that I've had to learn very, very much the hard way. And I just don't see where telling people that they're victims or telling people that this is a place where you can get status. Ultimately, they'll probably end up in the same place as if you were going to tell them that they are 
you know, finding wealth will be the answer to all their problems. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really just makes you an annoying whiner. I mean, that's nine <laughs> times out of 10 what happens. Like no one gives a damn. We all yeah. have problems. We could all paint ourselves as victims if we wanted to. Some mm-hmm. of us, even despite massive life challenges, have picked ourselves up, moved ourselves along, and things have been fine. Look at Oprah, right? Like the mm-hmm. number of childhood sexual abuse uh, incidents that she suffered, among other issues, very, very poor, black in the South at a time when that was not a great status to have. There were open discrimination on the streets. Mm-hmm. It wound up okay for her. She had a can-do attitude. If, even if you don't like Oprah, you got to love that about her. I love and, Oprah. And you know, you, I want to talk about Oprah because I have some thoughts, but I was just watching, um, first we watched the King's speech with our, with our oldest child, and then we parlayed that into... Um, the one about Winston Churchill, our darkest hour, darkest hour. So it had World War II in the brain. Mm-hmm. And I, I wound up those two films thinking, we really need more conflict in our lives. We need more <laughs> real conflict. Like there's a speech with Winston Churchill, like, would you, would you, would you want to fight or would you want to surrender to Churchill or to, to Hitler? And the people are like, I'd rather die on the streets. And he he's yeah. out there like, we will die choking on our own blood in the streets before we'll yeah. surrender to this man. And like, now we're like a microaggression. I need it. I need to save space to discuss it. Like stop yeah. it up for the love of God and focus on something other than yourself. Yeah. It does feel very self absorbed. I'm reading. Have you ever read alone in Berlin? No, it is. It's a novel written by Hans Falada, and he wrote it in 1947 um, and died short. He didn't even live to see it published, but it takes place in 1940 in Berlin. And it's about the working class in Berlin who weren't on board with the party. And they were trying to kind of, it's based on a true story of this couple who were putting postcards all over Berlin and basically resisting Hitler in whatever way they could. And there's this insane line in the novel where the wife is talking to the husband when he's telling her about this idea. And she says, isn't this so small? Isn't this enough? And he said, whether it's small or large, it will still cost us our life if if anyone finds out. And it was just so moving to me to think about what it was like to live in this time and under... Nazi Germany. And, you know, I, I, I recently wrote a piece of satire after the election. It was the weekend after and I was reading was through brilliant. Twitter, which is never it. a great, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I spent the weekend reading my grandfather's letters and then also reading Twitter and people were literally acting like they just got back from the beaches of Normandy. I'm like, you guys, what, what are you talking? The disconnect is so crazy. I can't, it was just, um, I, it's mind-boggling to me. And then even reading this novel, to think that people really think now that they're living in those same conditions where people were disappearing, where you could not speak out against the the Nazi party. You could not say anything. It would You would be disappeared. That mm-hmm. To think that people think that this is what they're living in right now, it, we've done such a massively horrible job educating our children. <laughs> I don't know why. All right. I've got to, I, I read it when you, when you published it and I, I pulled it for today because I, I wanted to bring it up and just so the audience understands, okay, here's the, your, your satire about, you know, those who made it through the Trump era. Um, <laughs> here's an excerpt. 
It's not enough to be racist, mom and dad. You have to be anti-racist. And anti-racist means hating white people. Not a single day has gone by since the bad orange man brutally ripped our safe spaces away from us that I haven't looked in the mirror and hated myself. So I've spent the last four years being the best ally I can be. <laughs> Posting truth bombs on Twitter, making resistance stories on Instagram, screenshotting people's tweets for Commander AOC. <laughs> and then here's the last part. Not, not everyone made it. The PTSD was too much. They'd jump at the sight of red hats, constantly bombarded by violent speech like only women get periods and symbols of colonial oppression like the American flag and math. It's just so smart, Bridget. <laughs> uh, you do a great reading of that, actually. It's really <laughs> that's my interpretation you it, of you. You read it in the tone that it was very much in my head when I was writing it. I feel like another person takes over when I when I write those like the it's the per, the parody of the people I imagine. But we did see that we saw it with journalists and with people on the <laughs> left who are like, I'm so exhausted from my battle, my four year battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, four year. I, I saw some tweets and it was like, after I after I smoked this cigar, my wife had one more thing for me to do. And then it's a picture of them hanging up the, you know, hanging the American flag. I was like, you guys are, uh, you oh. are a parody of yourselves. I can't, oh I, how am I supposed to take this seriously? And I just, it, it's been a, it's been a really revealing five years for me. Somebody who by all accounts is, has become an accidental pundit. It's not something I ever aspired to be. I find this space to be horrible. I don't know how any of you have done this as long as you have and not aspirational at all. It seems, it seems cynical and toxic to me. Some most day on good days. I'm like, how have people managed in this space? It's so hard. Um, and, and I somehow kind of tweeted my way into the crossfire of the culture wars. And it's been, no matter what, I'm grateful for all that I've learned about myself in the process. I've really been forced to ask myself, what are my values? Which mm -hmm. is well, that's always true. A, a huge opportunity. That's true. If you spend time in the political arena or this weird social media arena, which is pretty much one and the same, you are forced <laughs> to, to, to think about that. And I mean, it's no mystery to me why you've found yourself succeeding here and you found yourself gra gravitating toward it because you you are smart, you're funny and you're fearless. And that's the other requirement. You know, it may not be inspirational every day, like the figures who are in this battle. Most of them are not. Some of them are. But I but I feel like people who are out there like you and I, I, I would like to believe like me have our armor on. We got our armor on and we got our swords out and we're fighting. You know, we're doing it like we're trying to do something to fight back. And, and that in and of itself is worth something in these crazy culture wars. But mm. I mean, maybe I'm the hypocrite because I feel like fighting for the First Amendment, fighting for the rights that are embodied in our Bill of Rights is worth something. And that's not the same as I got somebody fired for a tweet today. Yay me. I just, I don't see the two things as equivalent at all. You know, they're mm -hmm. in this fake moral uh, battle to save us all from the bad people we are so that they can emerge victorious atop and righteous. And I feel like then there are those of us down here who are like, we're all good. We're all bad. We all have the right to say and believe what we want. Get off of our backs. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's a, it's a very this is what I've pushed back against on the left. And it always, you know, I it winds. I, I hear the but Trump, but we don't hear you pushing back. First of all, I came from the left. So it's almost like I see it as my family more than I, I was not raised in a conservative household at all. In many ways, I was part of the liberal bubble. I didn't even I think the best example of me realizing what a bubble I was in, and I joke about this a lot, is when I went on Glenn Beck's podcast and he was interviewing me and I was sitting there like, did you know that the left has double standards? <laughs> and Glenn's looking at me like, yeah, I've heard. I've, I'm aware, oh, Bridget. That's cute. <laughs> exactly. It's like an adorable, naive person who got some, who it really, I am the kind of that classic person on the left who really just repeated what I heard from CNN for all. I mean, there's really not a great word for it, but I would say I was a quintessential libtard and I definitely didn't really do any research. I just parroted what I heard and thought I was because it is so much uh, Michael Malice does a great job of kind of explaining this idea of the cathedral, which isn't even his concept. I always forget whose concept it is of the media, academia, entertainment, and me being so lost in this or, or kind of it's the water that I swam in. I didn't really even realize that it existed and coming out of that being, I, I guess for all lack of a great term here, either that it's, being called red pill to a certain extent. For me, it was just being exposed to the whole entire spectrum of media and seeing how much I didn't know about anything. That was, mm -hmm. that's been the most humbling part of the last five years. And it started really when I was at Playboy and I was tweeting about um, something about there was a mass shooting and I was tweeting about guns and then I was getting pushback from my audience. And some of the critique was fair and accurate because I sat back and realized I know nothing about guns. I don't even know how to shoot a gun. I don't know anything about the gun laws in California. And I'm 100% just reacting emotionally to this, which fair enough, it's a horrible tra tragedy, but in, I don't know. And I don't know what I'm talking about. And so I had, I solicited emails from my audience to tell me what they thought about what this gun debate is and what should be done. And and I got so many interesting, thoughtful essays from people all over America. And I sat back and it really was a big moment for me of recognizing my limitations in the space, recognizing how little I know about mostly everything. And from there, I really just started. It was a, a completely new learning experience for me. I got a crash course into home title theft, and you better pray this thing never happens to you because it can ruin you financially. Here's how the crime happens. The legal titles to all of our homes are kept online where they can be hacked. Yes, they can, like anything online. What happens is a cyber thief finds your home's title. They forge your signature on a quick claim deed stating that you sold your home to them. Then the guy takes out loans against your home until all of your equity is gone. And you have no idea it even happened until the collection calls start pouring in. You're not protected by insurance, by your bank, or by common identity theft programs. 
Home Title Lock, however, will protect you. You don't even know you might fall victim to this crime, but this is a bad one. And in the unlikely event that you do become a victim of title theft while a member of Home Title Lock, Home Title Lock will spend up to a quarter million dollars in legal fees to help restore your home's title. That's amazing. They put their money where their mouth is. So go to HomeTitleLock.com, register your address to see if you're already a victim, and then use code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. You mentioned writing for Playboy, not necessarily being red-pilled, but maybe purple-pilled. You sat back, you thought about it, you read, you started educating yourself, and then you came to the very fun if somewhat puzzling realization, and I quote, that boobs could save the world. <laughs> <laughs> I really Help do me. think they can. Help I me. <laughs> do. They're just, they're, they're the universal. They're, I, it's funny. If you say boobs in a diner, men will pop up like meerkats. It's just like, you can just say the word anywhere and men's heads will just pop up. I think that it's there's something just softening about it. And I've been joking about this is I I was very provocative and very much an exhibitionist. Some of this I'm again, I've been on just a very public learning about myself journey. Some some of this has come about because I got sober in 2013 and then stumbled into this space. And now looking back, I'm even looking at how I uh, just how so much of my trauma played out publicly, really, without me even realizing it. Things that I totally buried have come up and things. Um, so I think that reclaiming my sexuality, reclaiming my body, and, you know, this is a conversation that I don't even really know how to get into I've been trying to write about this for years, but there there has been this awareness of how I feel that I regret being a slut, which I don't necessarily like saying because I, I really don't like slut shaming. But I also think that I was kind of lied to, and I'm not saying this as some victim, just that the culture was very much that if you use your sexuality, it is empowering. And I have found that to be the opposite. And it's been a long road of healing and self-esteem and in some cases, abstinence and lots of dirt bags in my life before I came to realize that I really had no self-esteem. And if, if you're coming from that place and weaponizing or using your sexuality, and again, it's kind of like trying to find status or fill that whole... Um, stop it yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) no pun intended um with something else first you're talking about the men popping up in diners at boobs and now you're talking about (laughs) filling the hole and slush jamie this is a good thing we have the explicit warning on this podcast everyone i go on always gets the explicit (laughs) um (laughs) yeah it's 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 definitely been a journey for me to to really see the those uh that's that's the weird thing is reclaiming my power as a woman, but actually coming from a place of self-esteem and confidence and yes. not coming from a place of desperation or um, trauma. No, I know exactly what you mean. You get sometimes 
women will look at other women's uh, behavior, you know, if it's promiscuous behavior and they go from man to man and y- you as a woman can see there's an issue there, like not yeah. in every case, but in a particular case, you can see a woman's looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Like she mm-hmm, thinks it's going to mm-hmm. be fulfilling. And you can say like, I don't, I don't like it. I, I wish you would make a different choice. And the response to that c- cannot be you're slut shaming. No, it isn't. It, it like, I'm trying to figure out why she's doing that and whether it's well motivated. If you're just mm-hmm. somebody who loves sex and you love multiple partners and you go in and out of it with a clear head, mm-hmm. right on. That that's none right. of anybody's business. But I like you have seen a lot of girls, younger women in particular, late teens, early 20s play this game where mm-hmm. they mistake physical affection for love. It's somehow in the moment an ego booster and then after the fact anything but and like a drug, they keep doing it over and over and expecting a different result, you know, mm-hmm. like a drug and a crazy person, right? If you go to the old definition. Yep. And it's damaging. It's unhealthy. That's not judgment. That's keeping it real. Like, yeah, that's not a good choice. It's certainly not a choice I want to see my daughter make. Yeah. And it's definitely there's so many mixed messages that you get. And I, it's interesting just seeing the, you know, the numbers now with the kids, it seems like there is less sex than ever before. So we weirdly, I feel like there was an overcorrection. And then there now seems to be another strange pivot where there's, um, uh, again, it seems there's a moral, um, it seems strange, but it's, it's strangely coming from the left. There's a lot of weirdness around sex, which is something I wouldn't have necessarily expected. And wait, but what I don't follow, because I don't I don't read the Playboy magazine or that and nor do I I don't have my finger on the pulse here. What what is the weirdness coming from the left? There there seems to be a lot of I think it's more the confusion around sexuality and gender and and the the conversations around this are so confusing. And I think because of the Me Too movement, which is absolutely something that we needed, there again feels like there's an overcorrection. And now we're having um, just having to walk through every step of, for instance, a sexual interaction and getting affirmation every step of the way and mm-hmm. having these what are normally awkward situations that we all have to go through and navigate. I feel like we're trying to hack our way out of it. And there's no way to avoid that awkwardness in sexuality. You will have to go through that, whether you go through it when you're 13 or 14 or whether you go through it when you're in your 20s. There's no way around that awkward learning about yourself. And I feel like now it's it, there. there is this very strange um, kind of trying to micromanage this process and it's not possible. It just Mm -hmm. seems like now kids are, are not having sex at all. You know, the numbers are, I think it's the first time in a generation that the generation below Gen X millennials and then Gen Z are having less sex than ever before. I would attribute a lot of this to just being kind of addicted to their phones and perhaps Mm -hmm. they're doing it in a more virtual way with, sexting and whatever other ways they might be getting that fixed. But it still seems like there's less in real life interactions happening. 
Well, it's interesting. So it's virtual and not virtuous. Um, Abigail yeah. Schreier was saying something along these lines. She wasn't like, yeah, let's get all of our kids sexually active. But she was saying um, that one of the things you want to do in a young girl who, and you know, her, her theory yeah, based I, I on love Abigail. Yeah, yep, yep. a lot of research is that there's what's happening with our young teenage girls right now is, is a social contagion of transgender yep. issues. Mm-hmm. And, and so in talking about, well, how can we prevent that in our daughters? She was saying, you should encourage your daughter to explore her own body, to be comfortable with her own body. And she, again, she wasn't saying like, yeah, have her lose her virginity at age 15, but she was just right. saying there like, watch the shaming and things like that. It's, it's normal for you to be curious about your body for you. Most, most women are straight. Most men are straight to be attracted to the person of the opposite sex and to want to like figure that out a bit. And if you have too puritanical an approach, it can backfire in severe ways. And so you got to figure out how to thread that needle. So your kid treats themselves with respect, but doesn't get a complex. Yeah, it's so I I can't imagine being a parent right now. Teens or young, even young kids coming up, there's so there seems to be so much confusion. And even just from the younger generation, the kids that I'm talking to, it just seems like there's a lot of fear. You know, there an abnormal amount of fear. And mm-hmm. I remember, I remember my we all remember our, our first kiss. I, I hope most of us have the benefit of that first kiss. Mm-hmm. I remember mine. It was at a dare dance. And I remember going dare to the, different- the anti-drug thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you found another vice. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I mean, it's ironic. And they, then I remember going to second base and I didn't lose my virginity until I was 17, which was actually pretty late for most of the girls in my high school had serious boyfriends and were already sexually active just with one partner. And so it was pretty, I was now I'm 40. I just turned 42. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So I, I was of that, um, younger, I guess I'm an exennial technically. I'm like the younger end of Gen X. And, but I feel much more aligned with Gen X. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just remember all of the awkwardness. And I wonder, this is why I'm not too judgmental of any of the kids in these positions is if I was a teenage girl, I hated being a woman. I hated it. I've had the worst penis envy my whole life. My, (laughs) so much of my life has been defined by this this just feeling like men had it easier. Writing for Playboy was eye-opening, really hearing men's struggles around things like erectile dysfunction, balding, being short. I had no idea men suffered Mm. as much as women did. It was eye-opening for me because I always thought they just had it easier, period. And and so that was just... um, I don't know if I lived in a culture where I could just all of a sudden decide that I could be another gender or not any gender when I was feeling awkward and my boobs were coming in and and I was just the awkwardness of puberty. If I could have found some way to short circuit that or to to change, I, I might have been ship. all for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Which would have created necess- a whole host of, of new problems in your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah. but I, I think you have a, a, a great point. And, and also, 
you know, the number of layers now that we want to put between young men and women about to have sex for the first time, thanks to, you know, all of the awful incidents of assault and misunderstanding and actual rape and date rape and all of it. Um, it's scary, you know, and I, in addition to having a girl, I have two boys. And mm. the last thing I want is for them to find themselves in a situation where they've had what they fully believe is a consensual sexual encounter, only to find out the next day the woman feels or or is claiming she feels like she did not consent. And mm. now they're being looked at as criminals. And mm. that's why you have things like sign this piece of paper before I get on top of you. It's yeah. like insane. But on the other hand, you're like, shit, it's a really litigious society. We are yep. seeing women have what we used to call Sunday morning regrets, you know, which is not mm -hmm. the withdrawal of consent. It's just you're sorry you did it. Now you want to blame mm -hmm. somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, it terrifies me. You know, I mean, back yep. in my day, Bridge, and I'm, you know, I'm 50 now. We I, like my first experiences, I remember being like, no, no, no. But I did mean yes. And my no actually did mean yes. And I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not saying it does in every case. But like I was just trying to be a good Catholic girl and protest when I didn't really protest. And now everything's on top. The world's on top. You know, it's upside yeah. down. It's it's something I've really learned a lot from the younger women that I when I was writing particularly about relationships. And I I definitely understand, you know, I was waiting tables up to three years ago and I worked with a lot of younger women and they were so funny with the men who would, you know, touch their butt or all the guys who were in the restaurant industry. It's like if I fought every one of those battles, I would I would be fighting all day long. But these girls were like, don't touch me. Don't touch my calf. Don't do that. They had language for it and they would stick up for themselves. And I was so impressed with them. And they and I was like, wow, I never even thought to push back. I just kind of took it. And they're like, well, just because you old ladies took it doesn't mean we need to. And they're not completely wrong about that. That's you know, they're, awesome. they're, they definitely grew up in, in a... I'm happy for the younger women that they grew up in a culture where they, it wasn't, it's not acceptable that their manager is creepily touching their leg when he's holding her while she's standing on a crate to get some coffee down. Like the, mm -hmm. the little, those little things that happen, happen all the time. And it was great seeing these 19, 20 year old women being like, don't touch my calf. You're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's, the good part of the Me Too yeah, movement. That's, that's the good where, stuff that came out. Yeah, of there's so much. And this is, I've written a lot about this because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And and then there's the other side where I, I just, there are just questions I have where I don't understand why two, if you're at college, you go get drunk, you both sleep together. Now men are reporting women and I don't have any numbers on this. I've just read a couple of stories about how there's a race to almost report because the first person who reports is it, the victim. It, it's the victim. Exactly. And so there there's this fear. And generally, I don't understand why if a man and a woman are both intoxicated and they're they're the same level of intoxication, you know, not a man who's slightly buzzed and a woman who's completely blacked out. Why mm -hmm. a woman why she is kind of automatically deemed the victim in that situation. No, she shouldn't be. She shouldn't it be. Shouldn't That's be. I mean, true equality means no. She doesn't get right. some special consideration just because she happens to be female. And you can have female harassers and you actually can have female rapists. 
Um, and I don't, I, if I were a man who thought a woman was going to do that to me unfairly, I'd have, I'd have to seriously consider that too, because yeah, some women I mean, do use it and, it and that, and that undermines all the real victims. It does. And, and this was kind of my, I, I'm, I say this as a woman, just so your audience isn't thinking I'm this, you know, heartless person. I say this as a woman who is, who was drugged and raped when I was 18. So I had, and this was a situation where it was, I was clearly the victim in a situation like this. And, and it's a lot of, you know, me too, all of this stuff that's come up, all the Kavanaugh hearings were really hard. It, it, all of this is, has forced me to do a lot of work around that trauma that happened to me. But then seeing, I'm a woman who believes in, in due process. And even if a bunch of women came forward, I would about the person who did it to me because I never said anything because I was so young and I felt bad and I felt ashamed and I felt like it was my fault and all this other crap that wasn't true. Um, I, and I thought that he was, you know, I had, I really had an interesting realization. This was the summer of Monica Lewinsky. And I remembered being I remembered looking at what was happening with her or around the same time as Monica Lewinsky's stuff was going, you know, very public. And I obviously thought I didn't stand a chance. I was looking at this poor woman who is 21 years old and seeing what the, what was happening to her on a public level. I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying anything. And I wonder how many women who came around that era kind of was looking at this and feeling very similarly. Mm -hmm. So I just decided not to say anything. And, and, um, if somebody came forward now and accused him, I would definitely be right behind them. But I would also feel like he deserves his day in court. You know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, Hey, let's go to Twitter and ruin his life. I would want to have him go through the process that everybody deserves. Well, so, so yes, the, the, the Me Too movement was largely good, largely good, just because it wound up, I think, dying as a political movement. It got hijacked by political people yeah. and used as a weapon um, Which against was always men like fear. Kavanaugh. Yeah. yeah. And so th that's, that's when I said, you know, I, I don't want to associate with that term or these people, Alyssa Milano. No, she doesn't. She and I have nothing to do with one another. Um, I believe in no. the noble effort to protect women in the workplace and women who are sexual assault victims mm -hmm. and women who are placed in these impossible situations from the really severe to the one you mentioned of the waitresses. That's it's not OK. And it's right for women to stand up against it. Something not just when you were younger, we'd never been doing. We really as a as a gender had never been doing. I, too, was mm -hmm. raised to think you just got to suck it up. And it's only very recently that I think women in this country have started to think, no, I don't. Right. Actually, I don't. But to round back on the your larger point, um, it's interesting to hear you say if, if someone came forward against your rapist, you would stand and say, me too. But is this somebody you've never named? Was there never any accountability even after those Monica Lewinsky years? Yeah, no. But I, what made me think about this was the whole Bill Cosby thing. And I wrote an essay um, just on Medium. Bill Cosby raped me kind of. It, it's a, obviously not true. But it was me 
reacting to all of these women coming forward. And my initial reaction was, oh, isn't it a little late, ladies? Don't you think? And I was shocked at my own reaction to it because what happened to these women once I actually read about it is pretty much exactly what happened to me almost identically. And I really had to look at how much of the internalized shame still lived in me because I asked myself if a bunch of women from the, that, that time and place came forward and they said, this, is, this happened to, this, to me with this person, um, I, would, I would definitely back them up. You know, I would definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would you go first? Um, that's a great question. I guess because it's been so long. I and I that's a good question. I I never even thought to. I never even until this moment. You know, I've told men and they're like, "I'll go kill him." And then you end up kind of taking care of them emotionally when you're telling them this horrible thing. <laughs> Guys, don't do this. Um <laughs> And it, and so I guess there's been moments, but it's never really even occurred to me. I, I think it just seems like um, something that I don't want to put myself through, mm-hmm. just because I, I've done. I respect that. I respect just you, because you have no I've obligation. done so much. Yeah, I mean, maybe I I don't know that it's happened to anybody else. You know, I don't I don't. I only know that it happened to me and I feel that I guess it never even occurred to me to do that because I've, I've done so much work around it myself and I just feel like it was something, God, it was like over 20 years ago now. It, mm-hmm. It's like, do what I want to relive that all over again for, mm. I don't think so. I don't, I, I, I don't. That's, that's a very valid concern i i in no way think you are obligated to do anything there i think you're obligated to do what's right for you and that, that's why i hate when women who find themselves victim number 9 um somehow feel the need in the press it's never victims 1 through 8 um or rather victims 10 through whatever the ones who came after don't blame them but the press is constantly asking questions like well why didn't you you know, like as if yeah. it's your fault, anything happened after you. Yeah. And that's bullshit. You, every yeah. person has to do what's right for her. And this is not an, an, an area in which every woman is, wants to be Joan of Arc and totally understandable. These are deep wounds that are deeply affecting, especially yeah, when you're I mean, 18, it, Bridget. It I mean, changed my life. Girl. I, oh God. I mean, I, uh, Yeah. I wish I could go back and and give that woman or girl. I felt so old. Like there there had been so much stuff in my own family life that I already felt so old, but I wish that I could have given her the kind of compassion and and just I don't know. I didn't I didn't have the support that I think you should give somebody in those circumstances. And it ended up it changed the way I felt about I mean, I felt dirty for years, years and dated men who didn't deserve me. And um 
It's, yeah, it's I, I was in rehab for a heroin addiction a year later. It was not, it, you know, my drug use escalated drastically. There, If there are moments in my life that are pivotal where you can put markers down as to my behavior going from one way to another, one would be my parents' divorce. The other would be this. It was like I was, I was kind of already slipping. I had been doing drinking and smoking pot all through high school. And then everything just escalated. I could not get out of my brain fast enough. And then you put yourself in situations doing that, that, that pile onto that shame and pile onto the feelings you're already feeling, which is why I think if you're a woman who's struggling with any of this or has had any abuse or, um, any assault in their background. And then they're like, oh, I'm just going to try and sleep my way through this, which I really did try to do. Like if I'm, I'll just try and weaponize sexuality and use, use it as a, a powerful tool. Um, it was like a lie. I told myself for a really, a really long time, like a, a very, a very, very, very long time. And it didn't really start healing until I got sober. And I mean, for the past seven years, it's just been weeding through so much of all of that uh, confusion and self-loathing and shame. And and so, yeah, I guess it just never even occurred to me because I was really on just like a 20-year bender afterwards. And, and also just, um, you know, your character, again, I, I refer back to what I saw even someone like poor Monica go through, your character just gets so assassinated. Even if you, even if I went on trial now for something like that, do I, I asked myself, do I want to put myself through what their lawyers are going to put me through? Here's mm-hmm. everything we know about this girl from the past 20 years and knowing my, my reaction to, um, you know, I was basically in rehab right after that. So yeah, you'd get dragged through the mud, even if I you didn't get go criminally yeah. file, even if you just came out publicly. Yeah, uh, there's very little question you'd get you get attacked as well. It's Obviously. that's why it's like it, it's totally personal, and it's yeah, not I, uncommon at all to after a sexual assault or a rape go from man to man, looking for a different result, looking to feel empowered, you know, looking aimlessly for just something, something better than what what came i see your reminders when you when you reach your anniversary your sobriety anniversary on twitter and you're you never make them about yourself you always make them about all the people who are out there struggling and how you're thinking about them and how you know how hard it is and just hearing you sort of fill out the story makes it more meaningful and also selfless of you i mean i knew that you'd been addicted to drugs um including heroin. I mean, not that it's great to be addicted to cocaine, but heroin is special. It's a special lane. Um, But you're very, you're very giving to to others, even in this forum in which you're bullied mercilessly, right? In which people are nasty. I know you've called Twitter the the high school. It's like a public (laughs) high school again for adults. It really is. Um, So is that scary for you to be on there talking about things as deeply personal Mm. as this? Uh, in a place that really is not safe um, and not necessarily rooting for you? Um, that's a, another great question. I I think I have to take breaks and make sure that I'm okay and that um, 
I really, you know, I had a great experience. Um, there's this kind of idea that in recovery, no matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll see that your experience can benefit others. And I never really understood how this can apply to all things. And I was in um, a meeting one day and a girl walked in. This is pre-lockdown. And she was really young and she had this look on her face and I, I knew it right away. I was like, she looked like she'd been crying. And I was like, this girl is traumatized. This is not like I'm having a bad day in sobriety. Something happened. So I just sat next to her because I didn't want some like, you know, there's often like weird, creepy guys in those rooms and whatever. Um, mm. they're, they're just weird or like a, a busy body. They're, they're just all kinds of personalities. And and I love them all, but I, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, I, I felt protective of her immediately and she couldn't really stay uh, present. And she, I was like, do you want to go outside and talk? And she went outside and her, she just kind of started confessing to me about what happened to her the night before. And it was exactly my story with variations, but very similar thing. And, um, I looked at her. She was the same age as me as when it happened to me, 18, 19. And I looked at her and I said, the same thing happened to me. And I'll never forget her looking at me and being like, really? Like that relief that somebody kind of understood. And she said, what do I do? And I said, I, I don't know what to do, but I know what not to do. And it's everything I did. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, let's go to a, a like a, a rape sent you know one of the there's so many great resources in california in particular and so we went we did everything i didn't do i i we went she got a kid that she had counseling they were amazing 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 i would donate all my money to the work that these people do it is unbelievable just the way they treated her and they gave her so many resources and you know she ended up Um, she was scared to tell her family. She ended up telling her mom things that I just didn't do. And now it's like amazing. She's, she's, you know, been sober. I, it was just like, if I went through that to be for that one moment in my life, it was worth it. It was 100% worth it. And I think that's kind of how to answer your larger question. I think that's how I look at, um, the the dealing with the kind of being open and then dealing with the thunderdome and the negativity to me if i can reach through the darkness and reach out to one person who's depressed or anxious or has been sexually assaulted or feels crazy because they feel like they're politically homeless and no you know i hear this all the time is like thank you i just don't feel crazy any any of those that connection is worth it to me ultimately because what else is all the crap that i went through for if not to try and lift other people up it, it, it just um i don't feel like a you know you said earlier that it's fearless and i don't i don't feel like i'm fearless that's one area where i might feel like i'm funny but i don't feel like i'm fearless that's something i feel like i'm just speaking um it seems like pretty unremarkable kind of common sense 
things. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm saying anything that's like yeah, radically. But knowing, <laughs> but knowing what's going to come your way. I mean, like that's, that is what you do, but then you're very well aware of what's, what's going to come back. I know you've talked about, you know, the messages back to you aren't just Ugh. like, you're wrong. You're stupid. It's you're a hack. You're worthless. You're garbage. You're, I mean, it's like the worst, the worst shit on there. I mean, Twitter is vitriolic and toxic. And so it is brave to be out there fighting on nonetheless, trying to create a soft landing space for people who are also hurting. And I just, I, I do have to tell the audience, I hope you don't mind. Um, that's how you and I first connected. I was, I was seeing you get retweeted by people I knew, and then I followed you and it was literally, I mean, gosh, it was like almost to the day. Um, I think three months after I left NBC and I was still reeling and mm. in a rough place mentally, just upset and sad and very teary and not totally understanding what had just happened to me. And you DM'd me, you direct messaged mm -hmm. me on Twitter. And I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to read what you wrote. You wrote, I wanted to say, I wanted to say, I love you. I'm so sorry what happened to you. And I know you'll land on your feet because you're strong and brilliant. You inspire me. And I wrote back, thank you so much. You are so sweet. Just when I occasionally start to veer toward the place of, do people get it? Do they see the truth? I get a message like yours and it shores me up. I'm doing well, mm. enjoying some time with my family and deeply grateful for people like you. Oh, I, it's funny. I, you know, I think I underestimate how much something like that can mean from even just somebody, a random person. And I know now, but from my perspective, just seeing, you know, you're in a different position, completely much more public, uh, obviously a household name. It's a, it's like what I go through times a million. And so on days when I'm getting it, I, I do look to people like, you or Oprah or people who are, who have kind of carved their way. And I guess I felt really compelled to reach out because it had happened to me, but I don't, <laughs> I guess I didn't think it, it was something that would even mean anything, you know, <laughs> like I'm it sure did. she's got tons of it people did. around her. <laughs> it meant so much to me. And I do have people around me, but I, I, the fact that we didn't know each other made it all the more meaningful in a way, you know, that mm. you had no reason to try to shore me up. You had no reason to say what you said. You, my good opinion of you wasn't relevant in your life. Mm. So it, it was sincere. That's how it felt. And it, it was just like one of those thank God moments, because when you're getting attacked and the, the mob is coming for you, it, one of the things you do wonder is, can I still be seen? Can, mm. Is the real yep. me still still visible? Yeah. You know, I know who I am, but I'm I don't know if they've succeeded in just painting me as this vile person and whether I can still be seen and messages like that or I don't know, you know, I'll be sitting on the streets in New York and somebody will come over and say something lovely and you know, like, yeah, good for you for standing strong, you know, this bullshit or whatever. that stuff. <laughs> that's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And and you I know you're a big writer about grit, resilience, for better or for worse, that's the kind of stuff 
that gives you grit and resilience. If you don't fall down into a puddle and knock it back up, yeah. you emerge from those kinds of experiences grittier and more resilient and, and better able to fight the next one. It's though, and it is those random things that I can't tell you how every time I felt like giving up or just, I, I not even giving up, just ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I, that <laughs> right. feels masochistic at this point. Why am <laughs> I putting myself out there? And every single time I've had that thought, I've received an email or a DM or a random message from someone just out of the blue saying, I just want to thank you. And, you know, Glenn Beck gave me great advice. He said, keep all of those things in a file for the days that you feel like when you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? I want to disappear because that's Mm -hmm. where I go to is I just want to disappear into the woods and have no Wi-Fi and become a writer or something, you know, or like a mm-hmm. or a unibomber. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what would happen to me alone with my thoughts. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he wanted to be a writer. I feel like <laughs> prolific. I think that's really what we're wrong. <laughs> I think we figured it out. More with Bridget in just one second. But first, I shared a hot story a couple of weeks ago, and it nearly crushed the Scoremaster website. That's your power, people. That's your power. The story is this. The average American has 97 points, 97, that they can quickly add to their credit score, but no idea how to get it. Aren't you thinking about this going into the new year? New year, new you, what can you do? This is an important thing, right? To try to work on your credit so you can get better rates on the things you need. Well, the Scoremaster credit scientists discovered an algorithm that super boosts credit scores, not just a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine that, almost 100 points on top of your existing credit score. That's super important if you're going to refinance your home, buy a car, or apply for credit. Here's an example. Say you've got just okay credit and you buy a car. You go to Scoremaster first, you boost your credit score, just the average of 61 points, and you could save 9,000 bucks on your car loan. Never mind if you got that 97. If you go to Scoremaster and boost your credit just the average before applying for a home loan, you could save almost 100000 bucks over the life of your loan. Same thing if you own a business, from getting a loan to funding projects to financing equipment. Super boosting your business credit score can save you a fortune. So bottom line, Scoremaster puts you in control of your finances. Enroll in just minutes and see how many plus points Scoremaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK. That's scoremaster.com slash MK. Uh, And now, before we get back to Bridget, I want to bring to you a a feature we call Real Talk here on the Megyn Kelly program, where we just talk about something in the news or something on my mind or, you know, something interesting and relevant. And it being almost the new year, I want to just take a minute and talk about 2020 and the coming end to 2020. What a year, right? I do not agree that it was the worst year ever. Um, You know, I I think some folks who lived during the Great Depression or during World War II um, or some other terrible times in our country's history, like slavery, um, might might disagree that this is the worst year ever. But it it wasn't a great one in many ways either. Just looking back, and yeah, I hate to ever mention names because you uh, you always invariably leave one out. But some some people who we loved very much in the public eye died. The year began. Don't forget with the death of Kobe Bryant. It seems like so long ago. The country's been through so much that was so painful for everyone. And then we lost some greats like Chadwick Boseman. Herman Cain died. That was personally sad. 
Regis Philbin, Alex Trebek, people who have brought a lot of joy into a lot of homes. Um, And of course, COVID-19. COVID-19, that is what this year is going to be remembered for and the hell that it unleashed on the world. You know, the number of deaths, not just in our country, but in so many countries. And the pain, the financial pain caused by the pandemic and the quarantine and the shutdowns, the anger caused to business owners who just wanted a chance to make ends meet and were told no. The death of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests in the street, the anger we saw, the craziness in places like Seattle where all hell seemed to be breaking loose, the divisions that were sown in our country, both on cultural issues and political, as the election geared up. Joe Biden emerged as the victor over Bernie, over Bloomberg um, to take on Donald Trump. The the doubts Trump sowed about the election results and the ongoing anger over whether he got a fair shake. You know, the country suffered. The wildfires out in California were still not healed from all of it. Definitely not healed, but we will be. We'll be okay. That's just the nature of America and Americans. You know, I saw one of those um, little memes online that had the the number 13 saying, I'm the worst number, and the number 666 saying, no, I'm the worst number, and the number 2020 saying, bitches, please, (laughs) made me laugh. (laughs) I don't know. It's not all bad. It wasn't all bad. I don't know about you, but I had time with my kids I never dreamed I'd have, you know, And, and part of it was stressful for sure, distance learning and all of it. Part of it was totally magical. Part of it was magical. And as I held my son, whose teacher died, Mr. Sorrell, who we all loved, I didn't know him, but I loved him through Yates. I loved him through my son, who loved him so much and talked about him all the time. And he got COVID-19 and died too young. But in the midst of all that, I was with him. I was there to hold him. We were together as a family and we had stolen moments that just otherwise wouldn't have come. One of those videos that was shared, um, there were so many funny ones, weren't there, during COVID? My, my favorite was of the woman, the blonde woman, drinking the huge glass of wine outside going, you okay? You all right? You need help? You're running. Oh, you're, you're running by choice? Right? She's like, anyway, it was great. And she goes, it's seven in the morning. <laughs> what are you doing? She does it better than I did it, but it was a great one. But there were really good ones that helped bring us together too. There was one that talked about sort of a bedtime story being read to children about COVID-19 and the quarantine. And it was about how, despite all the awfulness, all the lives lost and the pain people felt, real tears fallen, there were these moments of togetherness and reevaluation and new perspective where the earth had a chance to heal in some ways. We gave it a break you know, we let it breathe, where overworked parents got some time to take a breath as well, where kids who normally are run from one activity to another and then to a sport and then to a challenge after school or a club instead had to sit at home with family and ah, talk, <laughs> right? Um, you can't spend every hour of the day on electronics. You know, there was more talking. There was more eating together as families or as partners. And when you saw your friends, it was so joyful, right? It was so joyful when you got to see your friends. You got to see your mom for the first time in a long time. My friends and I did a um, 
beer pong, you know, flip cup uh, via Zoom, which was hilarious. I mean, like things like that. That's what I'll remember. And then reuniting with them after so long and the the way it made me feel, right? The way we're starting to feel now. We're not out of it, but we're almost out of it. The vaccines are coming. They're being distributed. They're being taken. And we're right around the corner, right around it from normalcy. One final piece of advice and thinking as we go into the new year. Whenever I start the new year, I try to say, before I say happy new year, the one word or motivation that I want to channel this year. 99% of the time, it's love. And I just make that my own first word privately that I say just as soon as the clock turns uh, to the next year. Uh, But it's something to consider doing. And after that, I actually think there's much more value in just taking it day by day. Just taking it day by day and looking for little things to be grateful for on a day by day basis. As you know, I'm I'm not big into the meditation, though if it helps you, I'm all for it. Um, I kind of do live my life in the moment, and I think it's the key to health and well-being. Just look around you and figure out what makes you happy. Put some flowers up. You know, look out the window. If you don't like your view, try to improve it. Call a friend. Do something small. You don't have to go for the home run, right? Just go for the single on a day-to-day basis, though, and see how it makes you feel. But try to choose wellness. That's for sure. Try to choose wellness. You know the things that aren't good for you. And little steps like that will get us out of 2020 into 2021, hopefully a little happier and a little wiser for the wear. Now back to our guest. I really loved what you said about um, do people see me? Because we all, you know, there are parts of me, there we all become a little bit of a two-dimensional version of ourselves, particularly on social media. And then the world tends to kind of flatten the personality down to our worst moments or the worst tweets we've had in those moments when you might be going viral. And it is, I'm, I'm not even kidding when I say some of my favorite moments are when I'm cleaning up my dog's poop in my backyard alone because I'm, I'm like, okay, you're Bridget. You're cleaning up your dog's poop. You know, you're just a, you're just a little human trying to get through just like everyone else. There's lots of other people cleaning up their dog's poop right now. They're, you're connected to them. You're in, you're in the, in the, it's just that grounding. I need to, I need to be grounded. And a lot of the people who reach out and I will say this to the people who have, who listen to people and have fans and, and I, I consider them less fans and more just friends reach. You never know, reach out, reach out to those people that you see. And also just like people in your life who are, who are going through it because you don't know when that is the right timed, exactly right timed message that somebody needed. You know, I'm getting more and more to the place in my life where I think, I was just saying this to Abby the other day that, that where I think that was my assistant and like my little sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when tough times come, I'm putting more and more value into getting yourself out of that place mentally, even when it's happening. Like yes. it's cognitive behavioral therapy, but I totally. used to be much more like you've got to feel the pain in order to get through the pain. Otherwise it'll all be bottled up inside of you and then it'll spill mm-hmm. out in some negative way. I not sure I believe that anymore. I, yep. having been through quite a few of these, you know, public things that are painful personally, I really kind of think 
do what you need to do to keep your mind off of the awfulness as it's happening. And then when your mind eventually does have to go back to the awfulness, hopefully it's not so bad. That's that's yeah. kind of been my experience. For me, can I tell you the things that I did that, that do. like really helped me over the past couple of years? Um, number one, crossword puzzles. The ah. New York Times crossword puzzle is a son of a bitch. Monday's yeah. wonderful. Tuesday's great. Wednesday's still doable. <laughs> Thursday's an MFR. Friday yep. is okay. Saturday, I don't want to talk about. Um, anyway, it it really does keep your mind off of problems because you must think. It's not mm -hmm. even just mindless work, almost like a crossword puzzle. I mean, a, a, an actual puzzle, you know, where you could still think as you're looking for the piece. Crossword puzzle, you have to be thinking using your head. So I really recommend that. Um, I'm going to confess that my other vice that really helped keep my mind off my troubles <laughs> was Dateline podcasts all about murder. They could oh, be a real soothing bomb. <laughs> yeah, women, women and their murder, their murder, their. I get it's it. Funny. I get it now. I I used to think we were just sick. For me, it really takes your mind off of it. I think most women are obsessed with crime because, let's face it, we're usually the murder victims. Yeah, um, yeah. And we grow up knowing that we get exposed to the news. And I do think most women have terrible, not fantasies, but like nightmares about nightmares. Being, yeah, being killed. Yeah, it's my worst so, nightmare. Yeah. In a way, it's taking an awful thing and turning it into a slight positive for yourself mentally, only that not that you're reveling in somebody's murder, but it just gets your mind off of things. If these are mm. compelling, intriguing stories that you fear one day may have personal relevance, but you know, logically, likely will not. And it's just it's it's jarring enough to get your mind off of it. Like if it were something like I'm going to watch an old episode of Little House on the Prairie, your mind would wander back. But you're talking right. about like a serious crime. No, it works. And the third thing I will confess, because I've never been a big, well, I used to teach aerobics, but since I became a lawyer and like kind of gave up all things to working at the office, including working out, I haven't been a big exerciser, but I got into exercise. I started taking this thing called the class here in New York City, and it really helped, really helped. Yeah. Just like getting in shape physically and group exercise with other people is before COVID. Uh, I loved it. And just for what it's worth for people who are out there struggling, I think some sort of group exercise where it's not like a personal trainer. It's not like something where you, you could think, but stuff where you yeah. can't think. And before you know it, you're across the bridge and the water's less stormy. It's so true. We started doing these in my little community that I have in lockdown. I, I definitely need to sweat in order to stay sane. That's just been a huge part of even sobriety for me, but also just, I know that a 20 minute sweat can completely shift my brain chemistry and my entire perspective and mood. And then I started doing just these group workouts where I would stream the workout on zoom with um, people in my fetacy.com community, the women. And it's been amazing. It kept me so grounded. We were accountable to each other. It's been something to just take our minds off being um, a lot of this stuff going. It's a half an hour, 45 minutes where we just get to focus on sweating and and there's a really big feeling of sisterhood i definitely have to lean into that i love the the crossword puzzle is a good idea i i think that meditation has been life-changing for me just from a looking at noticing my thoughts instead of identifying with every single one that has been just so helpful to me i love pretty much any and all 
meditation apps, but I I do I do listen to Sam Harris's a lot because his is a lot more um, you know, science scientific in many ways. And See, so I medita- can't do meditation. I when I sit yeah. there, same as me getting a massage where I'm like, ah, I'm drifting. My problems, 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 problems. That's why I, I need use- it though. That's <laughs> I know why you're supposed to let it come in it. and come out. But I can't. It's still there. The problem. Yeah. I'm like that's why I need, I need something I mean, more demanding. I started with three minutes and now I can now it's now I lost it's just but it's it's been the it's a challenge. There are days it's absolutely a practice just noticing my mind and how different it is and where it's at every single day is fascinating. It's just fascinating. How about massage? Watch. Are you when you get a I massage, massage, can you quiet your mind? I mean, it's tough. I'm pretty chatty a lot of the time, but I, <laughs> I'm i like the girl that gets a massage and just wants to know everything about the masseuse the entire time. But, so you're the um, one who ruins it for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> I try to relax. Yes, I try to relax. And it's I do think that massage body work in general, acupuncture, there's something about acupuncture where you put that needle right between my eyes and I my brain is like, like it just goes <laughs> flat line. Like it's silent. It's just there's something about acupuncture that is oh. has been helpful. I, I've joked that it takes a village to keep me sober being the other thing that really helped me is um, being of service. I will say there's a difference, I think, too, between, I mean, I don't know, maybe not. I think because one of the things I've noticed is grief behaves in a very different way than, you know, I think what you and I are talking about challenges in our life or or picking ourselves back up or overcoming hardship. And then there's grief, which is like a completely other animal where you'll be standing in the grocery store and you'll start, you'll be fine cruising along and then you'll be crying. Grief is weird. Mm-hmm. I completely so, yeah, so agree. Although I will say I, I was recently looking for this quote uh, by Ethel Kennedy, you know, the the matriarch of the Kennedy family, who's obviously she mm-hmm. had two sons assassinated. There's so much tragedy in that family. And so much. I could I couldn't find the quote. I'm gonna have to look it up. But it was somebody was asking her, How did you deal with all of this? You know, she's good God, how could you possibly know her eldest son was killed in I think World War II in a plane crash? And how did you handle and she kind of, her answer was essentially, I just got through it. I just like yeah. didn't she <laughs> yeah. didn't she tried not to stay wallowed in it. You know, she was like on to the next thing. And yeah. that's so much easier said than done. And you know, I I wish I had gotten to ask her those questions because I would have been like, well, but how? But what exactly? Like, what about when your mind got overwhelmed with sadness? Then, you know, how did you avoid that if you did? Or, you know, there's so much more to know because you're right, grief is in a special category. But when you mention it, when when you mention the word, I go right to the loss of my father. Mm. When you talk about grief, what, what are you going to? Um, I lost a lot of friends young. So I, I mean, by the time I was 21 years old, there were just, I had been to so many young people's funerals that I was like, I cannot ever watch a parent bury their kid again. I, I just, it, it, it was ridiculous. And I don't know if it was because I moved a lot. So I had a lot of different friends all over the place because I ran with them more. um, It was a lot of just young teenagers drunk, getting killed by drivers, driving, um, really tragic, amazing lights. And um, I think about them still, still, still to this day. And so my mind goes to there. And then 
my grandparents were really hard. Um, I feel like there's just been a lot of loss and a lot, a lot of loss around me, but I agree that there is something to be said for just, I, I also recommend therapy. You know, my therapist has a great technique where when I'm in that kind of, if it's grief or even if I'm feeling sorry for myself, you know, she says self-pity is totally normal. It's not something you, you indulge in, but give yourself, if you're feeling um, grief or, or loss or you're feeling sorry for yourself, give yourself a time. She's like, close the blinds for two hours, feel sorry for yourself, or maybe it's a day if it's something really bad and eat your ice cream and cry, but then you open the blinds and you, you basically put, you know, guardrails around it. Like, here's the time you're allowing yourself to feel this and allow yourself to feel all those feelings. Don't judge them, let them come and then open the blinds and start your day again. And I like, I like that. That is how I used to, I used to see it. By the way, I was talking about Rose Kennedy, not Ethel, but, um, that is how I used to see it. But I am telling you, I have morphed away from that. I'm not sure you even need the couple of days. I, I might be I co- becoming a, a true. <laughs> I, I might be becoming a true Irish woman and advising you yeah. to swallow all your feelings. <laughs> I, I think that might I be mean, the solution. I'm, I'm with you because I'm definitely the tough. I I'm not the friend people. They're like, oh, you're my friend. I come to when I need my butt kicked. So I'm definitely not mm-hmm. the the friend that's gonna coddle you. I'm the tough love friend. I mean, I'm just like bury that shit deep, like the Greatest Generation, <laughs> <laughs> and, totally. and get back out there. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think we're onto something. I, re- I think there's a reason they handled as much as they did without whining. You know, like my Nana, my Nana, she died in 2000, um, 2016, right after President Trump, right before President Trump was elected, she she died. But she was born in 1915. So she's 101 when she died. And uh, wow. this is a woman who, you know, she went through the Great Depression. She went through the World War. She went through the Civil Rights Movement. She went through like all the stuff that she saw, the Vietnam War. And she had to drop out of high school to help support her family. And the money was tight. They had no dough, blah, blah, blah. She never complained about that stuff. She never. complained about like she she wanted to make sure she got the, the right table at the diner. She wanted her free bread. <laughs> she wanted her senior <laughs> citizens discount. It was that shit. You know, it was like this. You yeah. don't worry about all this other nonsense. But yeah. wait, so I want to I want to I want to back up to a couple things. things. Uh, number one, let's not let's not move on without spending a minute on Oprah, because I've had evolving feelings on Oprah and I, I heard you, you said you loved her. I used to be obsessed with Oprah, obsessed. I wanted to be just like her. I, I loved her show. I, I want to tell my Oprah episode. story. She was so helpful to me. You know, just, I didn't know her. I just mean her show. I, I found it so inspirational. Um, she was just in my head, like her advice over the years, whether it was about physical safety or mental well-being or dealing with tragedy, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't like it when she got political, even though I'm an independent. You know, it wasn't like, oh, how could she support Barack Obama? I was like, yeah, OK. Then she seemed to get more and more political. And I I started to feel a distance from her, which is why they say you shouldn't go political because you're going to create a distance between you and at least half your audience. I felt that. And then she sort of started to sign on to some of the victimization talk that we're hearing now, which she had never, ever done before. And this is a country that's made her a billionaire a couple times over. She literally lives in a ranch called the Promised Land. I don't <laughs> think a lot of people want to hear about how hard she's had it as a black woman in America. I really don't. I, I think it's like Meghan Markle. Like, you married a prince, you live in a castle. Boo fucking mm. who? No one, no one feels sorry for you. 
and so she started to lose me because she just started to sound more leftist in her narrative and less inclusive. And I, I just sort of felt myself like separating from her, like in the long hallway in the mm. movie theater where you get pulled, pulled apart and you're reaching out for the other person. Of course, she wasn't reaching out for me at all, but I was reaching out for her. And then before I knew it, I could no longer see her. Here's here's my theory on this. And it's based on a tweet. I was tweeting about somebody was going off on billionaires and they were talking. I think it was when um, the Howard whatever, the guy who started uh, Starbucks, what's his name? Schwartz. Is that his name? Schultz. Um, Schultz. Thank you. He, when he was running for president, they're all like, oh, a billionaire, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, so you guys are going to be mad if Oprah ran for president. And I was schooled by all of the blue check leftists who thought, oh, you thought you were funny and dunking. And they were like, yeah, we would, this is, we do think that she's, that it would be bad. And that it's bad that she's a billionaire because a billionaire is a failed policy. This is like that that kind of rhetoric. <laughs> and I was shocked. I was I was really surprised to hear this because I here here to me, Oprah is the epitome of the American dream. Somebody yes. who picked herself up, overcame her own internal demons, started an empire, helped millions and billions of people, and made her own way and made billions of dollars. You would think this is somebody that they would say, hey, look, this is my theory is that Oprah sees that, that this is actually a class war and that there is some resentment towards her because she's a billionaire. And so she's pivoting into that place that you are talking about to try Mm. and maintain um, a connection to who she thinks is her audience. This is only my theory. Now, I went to the taping of Ellen and Oprah that happened recently in the past couple of years. Say what you will about Oprah or Ellen. They were dancing with this woman who I came to find out was had a couple of months. Her husband was sitting there crying. I'm like, these people, they move people. You know, they Oprah has been in people's lives and hearts and minds. But then they sat down and had the most unrelatable conversation <laughs> that I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. <laughs> because here you have a lesbian woman and a black woman who are basically, I mean, billionaires. I don't know that Ellen is yet, but I'm sure she's on her way. And they're talking about uh, joking about how they wanted to buy all the property. I don't know if it's ever aired. I hope I don't get in trouble for telling the story. I think I don't know. <laughs> so they're talking about how they were joking about how they were, were neighbors at one point and then they weren't. And then they're like, we should just buy all the property in between <laughs> our new houses. And I was laughing, but I'm like, this is probably not the most relatable story to be telling. Well, me. that's that's one of the problems. I mean, listen, I yeah. I hate wealth shaming because it's part of the American dream. Um, but it definitely I, I think for Oprah to sort of pretend, pretend that she's still a woman of the people while she's out there every other week on David Geffen's yacht. Um, maybe it's time to admit that's been like about 50 years since you really understood how anybody lives in America and that'd be fine. You know, like you've got to own that, but Ellen does have something like, I don't even know how many houses, dozens and dozens of houses. And yet she's supposed to be America's sweetheart. And then all these reports come out about how nasty she is. People do do that to you when you're well-known, but I will say in the case of Ellen, I know somebody whose sister worked for her who just had the most awful things to say. 
I've, so, I've and heard so- the opposite, though, from people who have worked for her who say she's mm. lovely. So it's mm. I, I mean, that's all that seems to me like it. I, I don't necessarily want to litigate whether Ellen is a horrible person or not. I do. I just don't. It, it's funny to me that I feel like so much of the divide that's happening in America is a class war. It's much easier to keep us divided by race. This is something I've been talking a lot about and by victimhood and by this oppression Olympics and dividing us all up into groups than because the the American working class, if we were all not divided like we are, we'd be an enormously powerful block of people. And it's much, I just think that these, there is a lack of, this is the funny thing about once you are wealthy, you do just lose touch. You saw this, we saw this recently with Cardi B tweeting about her $88,000 purse and whether or not she should buy it. And her oh audience came for her. And, you know, this is, and I was joking on Twitter, like this is a woman who promoted Bernie and like you fed this beast. You fed, there is absolutely a, a resentment towards wealth. And I would say that Ellen and Oprah, for all of their personal flaws, like whatever they might be, they have touched millions of people and they've brought joy into the hearts of millions of people and help people get through struggles. And they are massive because that's what they've done. You know, that they built their empires on truly connecting to people. And mm-hmm. that is, but, but don't I don't you begrudge think that, them any of that money. <laughs> but don't you see it? Like, I don't begrudge them at any one ounce of their success. It's all earned. Yeah. But the problem is, in both cases, really, they got very political. I mean, Oprah got yeah. very political and alienated half of her base. You know, I mean, I I don't know a lot of Republicans who still love Oprah. And same with Ellen, who said yeah. you know, she would never let Trump come on her show. She got shamed after that picture with George W. Bush. And then <laughs> that's it was when just they like started oh, coming for her. That's 100 percent when they started coming for yeah. her. And instead of, you know, that being like a moment of kumbaya, it was a moment of Ellen sucks. I mean, that's our country right now. But I do think if you if you want that universal love and you want to be that transformative figure, you got to stay apolitical. You, as hard as it may be, you got to do it. You got to be a Dolly Parton, you know, or a yeah. Betty White who never touches it because it's just, as you well know, when you get political, people get angry. They get how angry you with think, you. How do you think they do that, though? In so a, I would never. I if they feel that it's their this is where it's I, I feel really conflicted about these things, because if if somebody has that kind of platform and wealth, I feel like it's well within their rights to say whatever they want to say. And if they feel like they need to get political at the risk of alienating their audience, I think J.K. Rowling is a perfect example of someone who might be doing exactly this. Oh, I don't then, think there's anything wrong with it. I just right. think be prepared. Be prepared for what's coming, because right. you will like Ellen's learning. You will no longer be America's sweetheart. You know, and like you, you can't hold care? both roles. I do. I do. Because you I think do? most public people need that affirmation. I do. I think it's a life. Interesting. I mean, I wonder that's what's so interesting is that you become kind of disconnected, I think, by by the sake. I dated a very wealthy man who's in that level of wealth. And it was I call it the zoo of the point oh one percent. I'm like, this is another league entirely. When you're that wealthy, it's. I, oh, so so to finish my Oprah story, I was <laughs> she's after she does her whole little talk, she's standing kind of right in front of me and the crowd is is waving and she 
basically puts her hand up like a queen and is just letting people kind of touch her hand. <laughs> like she's oh, royalty. <laughs> You hated yourself for wanting to do it, didn't you? She wouldn't even. Oh, no, I absolutely. It was funny because I was like, I'm touching her hand. And I was like, I hope I get Oprah's pneumonia because she just talked about how she had pneumonia. And it was just a funny. It was a really it was really interesting because I have I think there's what we view these people as. Then you see them as people. But like I said, her. I mean, I was at a show at Coachella and VIP once and Beyonce and Jay-Z. I felt them walking towards me from behind before I turned around. You could feel their their star power is just that level of star power is so crazy. Rihanna, I was at a restaurant once and Rihanna came in and their level of star power is it's like something I've never seen in my life. And that has got to alter you like your brain chemistry when you Mm -hmm. have everyone around you. I don't even know how you how can you possibly stay normal in those no, conditions? That's like Rosie O'Donnell when she used to be a nice and be <laughs> famous. Um, she she openly I used to love her, too. Boy, oh, boy, did she change. But um, she <laughs> talked openly about how she, when she got really famous, you know, she had that talk show by herself as long before The View. And she was a famous actress and she had a, a magazine just like Oprah's like Rosie. Um, she literally started to believe that the laws and the rules did not apply to her. Like she talked about how she thought she could go through the red light without, you know, like that she was entitled. So it can be, you see this with celebrities like Tom Cruise or whatever, they morph into otherness because that, that level of fame and money, I don't think it's good. I definitely don't aspire to it. So long. I mean, and this is the question. Do you, so do you aspire to be not political? No, I don't. I have no aspirations. <laughs> I, <really> yeah. don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I want to be a good mom. Uh, and I am, you know, it's like I I wasn't. And then and then I changed my life. And now I am. I wasn't like a bad mom. I just wasn't a present mom. Um, right. But honestly, other than that, I want to do right by others while I'm here. I, I don't care. I never even now. OK, now I have dough in the bank and I am well-known, but I don't really give a damn. And it was, that was never the goal. My, my goal is always to do well. I love to be excellent at something, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't even to be relevant. It certainly wasn't to have power. It was just to the, the, the joy of a job well done. That is a pleasure. And I'd like to continue having that feeling. And I, you know, I can, I, one of the things I love about journalism is each day, you know, it's, it's a show and you have the chance of doing, if not the perfect show, then close to it, you know, close right. to it. And it, and if you don't, tomorrow's another day. You could try it again. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the law was incredibly frustrating because it, it never went away. It was just this mountain of paper that continued to build increasing mm-hmm. acrimony, nuclear war style, you know, fighting. And you could, you could say hand in the perfect brief, but there'd just be no time to sit and enjoy the spiking of the ball. There's on to the next battle and the never ending fight. So I don't know that that's one of the few things I can say that's positive about journalism. Is it is it just is it just that you I guess my question is what I I'm not surprised by Oprah's kind of pivot to where she pivoted. I I don't necessarily agree with everything she's saying and I guess I haven't really um yeah, I guess I haven't listened to her as much. You know, I I I really don't I 
I think I understand what you're saying and that it does cause a disconnect because I, but I, I don't know if that disconnect is because she's just not, she just hasn't really been connected to the common person. And now Mm -hmm. she's trying to reconnect through politics. And, oh, so my other question is, do you think that they feel pressured? You know, there's an enormous amount of pressure for people all the time, which I think is crazy. And I'm always saying this people during running up to the election, when I was saying I wasn't voting for anyone, people were like, this is just shameful. You it's your, you need to speak out. You people were bullying me basically into being a bully. They want me, everyone, everyone who has a platform is supposed to speak their opinion and tell people, other people what to do. And I'm, I'm not even, I feel no, I'm not really, um, it's not my place to tell people what to do. It's, mm-hmm. I have no desire to do that. That's not what I'm here to do. And I, who am I to tell anybody what to do? I don't know anything. I know a little bit about my life. And even that is questionable. And I think people with like Oprah and Ellen, you know, this high, whole idea of like silence is violence that's kind of taken over our culture is what are they supposed to do if they yeah. if well, they're silent? Sadly, sadly, all the people who are telling you you had to speak out, you had a responsibility work in the straight news roles of CNN <laughs> have totally <laughs> misunderstood what their role is as well. But no, I um. I, you know, look, I'm a news person, so I don't really have any obligation to tell people my opinion on, you know, how they should vote. And I, I wouldn't, you know, I can help them understand the issues and I can certainly try to separate nonsense from fact, but I've never been somebody who tells you who to vote for. And I've never revealed mm-hmm. who I've voted for ever. And I, and I wouldn't, it's just, it's, I agree for me, it's not, it's not my place. And I know you're not a, a sort of straight news journalist, you're a commentator, but you don't have to take that on. That's bullshit. Somebody else putting their shit onto you. You don't need to take yeah. that. Well, everybody else can figure it out. And I think the big thing with Oprah was she was looking at Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And here Oprah is the most famous black woman in America. And her audience was mostly women. And I think people were wondering if it was somehow a betrayal, you know, that she went with the guy. Yes, he's a black man, but she went with the guy instead of the woman. Uh, And, uh, you know, she sort of had a choice to make. And she some of her audience felt abandoned. Some Republicans felt abandoned. Some women who wanted Hillary felt abandoned. It's once you go political, it's fraught. All right. Let me take a step back with you uh, because we did jump. We started at the end. Well, not the end of your story. Let's certainly hope that's not the case. We started at the current <laughs> it day. It might be after this podcast, no. Megan. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and um, only if Ellen and Oprah are listening. Um, I love them. But we ha- I love them both. <laughs> right, right. We have to go back to not the very beginning, but um, I did in reading your story. Oh, gosh, I, I felt for you because you talked about how all of your middle school report cards said extremely bright, that you were mm. a model of discipline. You bet your cousin you were going to get into an Ivy League college. And all the while, you had no idea what was coming. Mm-mm. Chaos and a yeah. life that would be upended very shortly. When I when I learned that it was because of your parents' divorce, that I didn't understand since so many kids get divorced and it's hard, but it doesn't normally lead to as much awfulness that came into your life. So what what specifically do you think changed your life? Mm. Well, we moved away from my dad and my kind of whole family support system. So 
that was one thing. Um, I would also say, oh gosh, it's so hard because I don't really love talking about like other people in my family story. It feels like airing dirty laundry, but my, my, um, my stepdad was kind of fraught with a lot of challenges uh, that I don't know that my mom was aware of when they got together. Although, I mean, even as a 13 year old, I pretty much could have seen that the writing on the wall was not great. Um, and it, he kind of dominated her attention from there after and it caused a lot. It was, um, very, very, very dysfunctional and chaotic. And, um, we never really knew what to expect. My younger brother moved out pretty, pretty early back to live with my dad. And then there are, uh, four girls in my family. So we were there and it was, it was just, a a lot of mental illness and, um, kind of in and out of mental wards and uncertainty and, and, uh, yeah, that, I think that just the, that chaos and trying to cope with that and then just being isolated, those two things combined really after a while. And this is why I have so much compassion for even let's, you know, seeing these lockdowns and what's happening with the schools and I'll see people and they'll say, Oh, the schools need to be locked down. I'm like, well, you must come from a great family because for me, school was, even though I didn't want to necessarily be in school, it was, I never knew what I was coming home to. It was an escape from a lot of the chaos. And at a certain point, it becomes very hard to care about your grades. If your mom is in a ball on the floor and your stepdad, you don't know where he is and if he's even dead or alive, like those things become grades start seeming very adorable and simple. And, and, it just all of a sudden you're taking on grown up problems and you're around very serious things. And I think that I just really lost my way. I, I, I feel like I've lost myself many times in life. And that was the beginning of a long loss of myself and who I was and, and, and potential. I don't Could know you not answers. go to live with your dad when things got like that? I, I could. And I did my senior year. So I, I went, um, after my junior year, I went and lived with him for half of a year, but then my little sisters were calling and crying. And I, I mean, my mom and I were very connected and I felt like I, I was her kind of best friend in many respects and her confidant, which I do not recommend if you're no. a ch- mother out there. <laughs> no. Um, and you know, we, I just, I couldn't live with myself. I felt like I was abandoning my younger siblings, whether or not any of this was true, any of it, obviously looking back, none of this was my responsibility. None of this fell on my shoulders. I couldn't have saved my mom. I didn't go to college where I wanted to go because I thought I needed to be near my mom and my stepdad. One of the biggest mistakes of my life when I did go to half of a year of college uh, was doing that and being still so close. It was a very dysfunctional codependent. You know, we protected her. My dad really didn't even know. My aunts and uncles have have since come out and said, like, we had no idea what was going on in the house. And 
again, if you looked at our behavior, it wouldn't take a genius to figure out something's going on. These kids are acting out. These were really well-behaved kids. And now they're partying and doing all kinds of, of nonsensical things. But uh, there, there wasn't much. My dad was kind of, I think, just wrapped up in his new relationship. And um, we, I just always joke, my, my siblings and I always joke, you know, we did a really horrible job raising our parents. <laughs> no, but you're right. Like that. I remember when I was a teenager, I was saying something to my mom about, you know, being friends and, and it was a kind, lighthearted moment. It wasn't something profound between the two of us, but she stopped me right then and there and said, I'm not your friend, Megan. I have enough friends. And so do you. I'm your mother. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, that's... at the time I was wounded at the time I was like, wow, harsh. Yeah. Um, but now I look back and I'm like, you know what? She was exactly right. And she was creating a boundary that was important. That's an important a, boundary. A healthy boundary. Yeah. And I, I really, again, I have, I, I will, I will say that my mom and I didn't talk for maybe six or seven years at a certain points in my life. And we've been through hell and back together and we have a loving, compassionate relationship now where I feel it's, we're building more and there's a lot of forgiveness on both of our ends and, and just healing. Um, and she's, I can't walk a mile in her shoes. She had five kids under the age of basically seven. We were all like a oh year and a half God. apart. Yeah. All oh in diapers. My, we moved every year and a half when we were with my dad. So she was, we weren't wealthy. So she was unpacking boxes, getting us in different schools, getting us different piano teachers, doctors. I mean, you know what goes into having kids. And she was doing that with five of us every single year and a half. Wow. And I don't know. How I don't know. It. I don't know how she stayed sane. It's not, it's not, it's not, she, I don't know how she did it. And no, I, I, I look at women who are doing that. I mean, then and now, and I'm not saying anything about your mom, but a lot of them develop substance abuse problems and other ways of coping because it's really hard when you're, yeah. when you have no help like that, especially no, no help from the father, right? It's yep. like, start there. I mean, just having a partner makes all the difference. And then if you don't have that, you don't have help. You don't have a babysitter or a nanny or you're like a close family friend is going to help you. And you yep. have to put bread on the table like that would drive most people to drink. I mean, it's. Yeah. And she wasn't a, like a substance abuser. Um, no, that, I haven't gleaned yeah. that. I haven't gleaned that from what <laughs> yeah. you, you you took on that role. <laughs> yeah, no, she she was really kind of against all of that stuff, which was it, it's my there's a lot more of that on my father's side, just being I, Irish Catholic. And, you know, just to kind of circle back and and make one point I wanted to make earlier to say we I jokingly say, you know, bury it like the greatest generation. But I also did see the effect that that had on my grandfather, who was in war and never spoke about it and buried it deep. And it manifested in all kinds of you know, substance abuse issues that, that, uh, had a big effect on things in his life later. So I, I do think there's a balance <laughs> that we have to find yeah. in our lives. Uh, I'm a big proponent of, you know, dealing with that stuff and talking about it, even if it's with a professional so that you aren't necessarily self-medicating through some of that 
uh, pain that the greatest generation <laughs> buried. Yeah. But but you can't do the New York Times and l- listen to Dateline twenty four seven. At some point, you're gonna have to <laughs> reflect and yes. hopefully learn. But yeah, my, but so so they, what happened with you? Because you so you started like like a lot of kids with drinking, yeah, and then pot. I mean, I I knew a lot. I do you believe I've never tried pot? Um, I I, I think a lot of see that. <laughs> you can see that. I mean, I I've been drinking sadly like since my teenage years, but I've right. never I'm I've just never gravitated toward it. I don't know. My my mother yeah. really did stigmatize it in my head, and I was like, at my school, it was like something out of a movie. There were cliques. There were like they called them the swelts, the dirties, the creamies, <laughs> wow. the jocks. It truly was like a like one of those movies. <laughs> like Greece, and the dirties <laughs> were the ones who who did drugs, and pot was a drug. And I was like, well, I'm not a dirty, so I'm not gonna you know like. I was a swelt. The swelts drank, so I drank, which Uh I wish I hadn't. I really, if I could go back into my high school years, I really wish I hadn't started drinking. I wish I had kept sort of that young, healthy body healthy for longer, you know. But I I keep, I always joke to Doug now, my husband, I'm like, we have like two more years. My, our oldest is 11. We had two more years, and then we have to convert to Mormonism. I really, I want, like, I love how, like, the Mormons, they don't drink and they don't do drugs and they always stay a tight-knit family. I'm like, this Catholicism Presbyterian thing, it doesn't work out. People do drink and they leave their mommies and I don't, anyway, I digress. (laughs) But so you start by a little drinking and and some pot and then how, how does it take the next step? I mean, pot was my true love, actually, and I just... I still that if I was to say I miss anything in sobriety, I I still have moments of missing pot. It it was from the minute I smoked it, I was just I a daily smoker basically, and that was when I was fourteen or fifteen. I started drinking. I loved the oblivion that drinking brought me. I never drank to like fit in, or maybe I. I drank to fit in and that it's easy to move schools and find the party crew anywhere you go. It's much easier than having to just be myself. And, but I didn't necessarily drink to be more social. I'm pretty chatty and social anyway, but I really loved the just oblivion that came with drinking and my mind kind of shutting off, which is why I inevitably think I found heroin to be in my life. And then I did, you know, some psychedelics in high school. It was pretty normal, not normal. Looking back, I was a fully functioning alcoholic probably by the time I was 16. And I think I knew it and pothead. And then I started doing harder drugs when that first, right after that summer. And then that first year in college, um, I think the first real like white powder I ever did was speed, which I hated. I hated it. I hated it. I couldn't. All right. This is a dumb question from somebody who's never done a drug. Um, Is speed the same thing as cocaine? No. So this is more what we (laughs) would think of like crystal meth now. I guess we called it speed back then, but now I think it's pretty much just crystal meth. And so it was very, it just made your brain race and no cocaine is I I had many years of that too uh that went hand in hand with the restaurant industry and drinking and just the entire restaurant that that rut that I was in in a resort town those things are all um just part 
part and parcel of that whole kind of lifestyle that you live and um, that's later so that, that's after this that was um, later after college. rehab okay. so then i started um then i got introduced then i started doing i think i tried cocaine around that time um i dabbled in things and then i ended up getting together with a guy who was uh he had access to a lot of these other drugs and then started doing that. But it was, it was a very quick bottom for me. I was pretty much in rehab a year after I started doing heavy drugs, any of them. Like I started doing, sorry, go on. He's the one who introduced heroin to you. Yes. And other drugs. I mean, we were doing, all kinds of drugs, cocaine, um, I think crack, there was some crack in there. Uh, that was a, that was a very, uh, God, that, that it seems like another person. I, I, when I think of that girl and that time in my life, I was so, and then going to rehab for seven months, I was in a halfway house. I, I was just, and then getting out of rehab and what followed, which was even crazier. Um, just, and personal stuff. It was, and then I ended up moving here when I was 20. I moved to LA and then I was back, um, doing drugs again. And, uh, then I would kind of rescue myself and pull myself back from the brink and stop doing hard drugs and only smoke weed or stop drinking for a while. And then I moved back East to try and repair things with my family. And I was only going to stay there, but then I ended up marrying a Belarusian. And I joke that I married him in a year long blackout. It's not entirely false. <laughs> and we were together for a while and both in the restaurant industry. And so, yeah, it, it really, it really started that year right out of high school, the, the harder drugs. And then it just escalated. Cause I do wonder if, even though you've taken drugs before, is there a moment before you, you take heroin that you stop even in that state and say, well, this is yeah, an escalation. I remember it. I, remember it. I, I smoked it the, the first time and I remember vividly knowing I was crossing an invisible line that I had put down in the city. You know, it's like uh, even doing meth, which I hated. I have a journal where I was always writing and I, I have a journal where I was just trying basically to write myself down from the high because I was, I felt like I was losing my mind. Your mind just races. And I, I knew that that was an escalation. I remember vividly the first time because you kind of chased that emptiness forever and things just got, I, I was just so, I don't know why no one noticed I don't, that's what's so crazy to me. I was so clearly, I was 89 pounds, Megan, like oh my God. ribs. I had a horrible cough because I primarily smoked it and um, snorted it. And I had a, but because I was chasing the dragon, you put like tar on a piece of tin foil, and it's a, um, the whole process is very ritualized, like all drug use ends up being. But it was, it, it just destroys your lungs. I mean, you're inhaling chemicals from the tinfoil, you're inhaling, inhaling horrible black tar. So I had bronchitis and 
this was one of, you know, there's a lot of shameful moments in my life. And my grandmother, who was um, the greatest generation Irish Stoic woman, she, one day we were driving, she was driving me somewhere and she had this pickup truck. She was just such a character. And she said, you need to watch out, Bridget, because you have the gene. And she was kind of referring the gene that my grandfather had. And she mm-hmm. she just saw it in me. She was probably the first and only person who really saw it. And she said, you have to be careful. And I was like, whatever, Mame. I don't, okay. And I was, uh, I was on heroin at her funeral. I was, I was, um, she died when I was like in the middle. Ugh. Oh. That time of my life was so dark. It was like, as I just remember feeling so alone and feeling so lost. And then she went into the hospital and it was like, Mame was invincible. She was like the person I thought she'd still be alive. I never thought she'd die. I certainly didn't think she would die before my grandfather who almost died in my childhood. They gave him his last rites. They still have no idea how he even survived that. Um, he's now passed away as well, but, um, we all thought grandpa would go before her. He had so many health problems and, um, she just went into the hospital with this lung thing and died. Like it, it just happened. It was a rare lung disease. I, I can't remember the name of it. And I was kind of in the midst of it. And I re- I had just been home visiting and I was so sick. I had bronchitis and um, I came back and then she died like two days later. And then I had to fly back east. I was in Minnesota at the time. And um. I had to speak at her funeral and I remember being high and like having to write this eulogy and being so ashamed that she was a, the last time I saw her, I was just so messed up and B that she was, um, right. I knew she was right. I knew while I was standing there at her funeral. And I, I mean, I don't know how the, I think everyone around me was just so shocked and grief stricken that they didn't notice that I was you know, on the roof smoking heroin before I was going to her funeral. And it was like, I, 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 I don't, I don't think I've ever even talked about this publicly. I, it took me three months to even talk about it and, and rehab because I felt like the guilt that I felt. And then I ended up really, I mean, that was another thing that I just spiraled out. And I think the week before I went into my my the only rehab I've been in was that rehab then. Although that's not when I got sober fi- forever and finally. But, but I can I, just, I can was, I jump in and ask yeah. you something about that? Why yeah. why did you feel guilty about that? Uh I felt guilty that I was on drugs at her funeral. Like I just felt horrible. This is and she warned me that I was that I had that gene. And I just felt guilty. Like it felt disrespectful to her to be in that state it still feels disrespectful to her. I still feel like I, you know, I think part of the thing that keeps me sober, I have, I'm looking at a picture of her right now on her wedding day. It, I stay sober for her, you know, part of, part of the, the living amends that I make. And there are many, but one of the biggest ones is to her, to, to just live a, every day sober in her honor because 
she was right. And I have to remember that. And I have to remember that um, on those days when I'm like, I don't want to be sober anymore. I don't want to be in my head that, that it would, it's a way of honoring her life and honoring everything that she so selflessly gave to all of us. She's just so giving and amazing by mm-hmm. staying sober. And that guilt, I mean, I lived in, in the shadow of that guilt for a long, long time. It's still upsetting to me. It's still, it's. But it's so, when you think about it, but when you think about it, it's, it is, it's so crazy, right? Because she loved you and she saw, and she tried to throw you a lifeline, which you caught, you know, and you didn't use it immediately, but you did catch it and you got yourself out. She, she wouldn't give a shit that you were high at her funeral. She wouldn't have cared about that. You know that in your head, right? Like she would have wanted what was best for you. She would have wanted you to just get well. And not yeah, only I have you that, gotten gotten well, you you you're living a well life. Yeah, I try. I mean, she's I miss I miss both of them every day. I mean, they they were both just so they really did take care of us when we would <laughs> because after my parents got divorced, we would go we were with my, we barely saw my dad, but we would go spend summers with him sometimes. And they would end up taking care of us basically. And we were like these feral children who had no parents. We would be, you know, my aunts and uncles joke, like we were these dirt, like grimy little teens who were totally underweight and we'd be eating, you know, raw spaghetti, (laughs) drinking pickle juice. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents, this this was in Rhode Island, which is where my grandparents were. So, and we moved to Minnesota. Um, I was born in New York city and then moved every year and a half. We were in Connecticut. We were in Minnesota. We were kind of all over the United States. And then, but my family's from Rhode Island. And so that was really just the home base. And it's where my dad ended up going back to after he, after my parents split up. And now most of my family is uh, in the Northeast, but that was really the only real stability I had in my life was them, was my grandparents. That can make all the difference. You know, I've, I know a lot of people who have parents who are not that great and, uh, but who have great grandparents who step up. And, that, and a grandparent can save you. Yeah. I mean, I think they tried and, and my, I and really do. I did. They did. And I do believe that my parents did. I do believe that crap that people are doing the best that they can, even though I've had a hilarious conversations with people. I once had an Uber driver and he was talking about his brother and how he was on cocaine. And I'm like, well, just try and remember he's doing the best he can with what he has. And he's like, no, he's not. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that because I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> he's like, he's being lazy. How did you get that deep in, <laughs> into conversation with an Uber driver? Was it a very, very long ride? <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, that's just me. I, I like. Yeah. You're the I, one who talks to the massage therapist. What am I saying? <laughs> yeah, Again, so, the one who ruins it for all of us. I don't mean Do not it. want to chit chat while you are rubbing my behind. I'm I'm the girl on the plane that will be like, tell me your whole life story. Oh my God, you're my worst nightmare. I'm like, lady, can't you see I have headphones on? That's a universal sign for I don't want to talk. I'll leave people with headphones alone. But I have met some amazing people on planes that I'm still friends with. <laughs> oh, you are. That's oh, okay. Now wait, this is a great transition. Um I was on a plane, I don't know, 15 years ago, not even. 
happened to be seated next to the man who had just bought Penthouse out of um, bankruptcy from Bob Guccione. And it was a fascinating plane ride. I did not have the headphones on on that ride. And he was a great conversationalist. He was telling me his wife was a fan, so we wound up chatting. He he asked me if I would talk to his wife before we took off. I said, sure, he called her, blah, blah, blah. So he's telling me all about, he was a real estate guy from Ohio who wound up, you know, owning this pornography magazine. And um, next thing, and they also owned properties that, you know, had actual porn on them, you know, like live porn, I guess you should say, porn on video, whatever. Um, and he, he would go to the porn Oscars every year, you know, where like you, you'd win like best anal. And he, like, oh, yeah, yeah, the AVN. Right. And the girls mm-hmm. would be like, yay, my, you know, I won. And I was thinking, oh, it's confusing. Um, <laughs> anyway, we had a great airplane ride together and listening to his world was really interesting. So I get back to Fox, sitting in my office. And the mailman comes in with this box that is like two feet by two and a half feet and all over the box. I mean, every square inch of the box reads penthouse, 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 penthouse. (laughs) And of course, the mailman's got eyes as big as silver dollars. He's like, whoa, what's this? I'm like, oh boy. I open it up and it is a huge book. That is a retrospective to I don't know, 30 years of penthouse covers. And it's on the on the cover of the book is a very ungroomed circa 1972 picture of Madonna, the singer Madonna <laughs> in full, you know, full regalia. So and then I open it up. It's all penthouses, greatest centerfolds. But I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, what? where am I going to put this? Where does this go in somebody's house? <laughs> And as it turns out, it's actually right next to Doug's side of the bed, which is not is not there for the reasons you think, but it makes a great conversation piece whenever we tour somebody through the house. Um, but all of this is a long, long-winded wind-up to you weren't with Penthouse, but you were with Playboy writing. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. like the one girl who could both be in in Playboy and write for Playboy. I mean, like that's not the only one. I don't mean to diminish the others, but I'm just saying it's rare to have both a rock and body like you do and the smarts to write an article that it could appear in there. And um, maybe Deborah So too. She's writing for them. She's also mm-hmm. gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so I know you're a writer and I get writing for Playboy, but let's just rounding back to the naked Bridget. Like, what do you get out of that? Because I I know you don't go like full frontal, but you definitely post naked top pictures of yourself a lot. And yeah. I know you like it. Like you, you're getting something out of it. What are you getting out of it? Well, I mean, I don't do it as much anymore. Um, uh, because I'm married, <laughs> which no one knows. And I was going to say you what? right now. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I just got married on uh, November 10th. <laughs> Bridget. I know. Best wishes. I know. Thank you. Thank Who'd you. you marry? Oh, I hope it was the rich guy. No, no. <laughs> oh, uh, damn. He's the opposite of a rich guy. Um, no, he's a we met in recovery and um he is a therapist and also works at a nautical themed grocery store. And um 
yeah, we, we met, it's a, it's a crazy story. We met in recovery like a couple years ago and had a whirlwind romance, but he was pretty new in, in recovery and I never felt okay. I was like, I'm robbing you of this first year. That's so important because I know what it's like to get sober and I know you need that year to really just be with yourself. And I could never get good with it and broke his heart. And then 15 months later we got coffee and then, um, God, we've been through a lot actually in the last year even. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm sure people have kind of noticed that it's dialed back, but that's pretty much uh, why. No, why no, haven't I haven't you... announced it or anything yet. Yeah, how because, come? I, because I feel my private life has always been really mine. You know, there's so, I put so much out there and I've just, I've always, this is the most, um, public I've been about really anything. I don't really like to talk about stuff that's happened with my family other than in a kind of writing controlled environment, just because it feels like it's not my only my story and other people are involved. And I try to do right by everybody. I think everybody, you know, I don't consider myself a victim. I think that, that, um, my mom and my stepdad and all the people involved, my dad, uh, did they did do the best they could at that time. It, and I'm sure they live with their own regrets. And I know that um, we still, you know, things are, I would say, great now between me and everybody. And so I try, I just f- have always been f- kind of fiercely protective of the people in my life. They didn't ask for me to be out here publicly talking about things and also just protective of my private life because it feels like one of the only things that's mine. But now mm-hmm. it's bordering on the point of feeling like I'm li- not lying, but it's, hiding. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, hiding. Yeah, now it's bordering <laughs> on the point of, okay. Your um, secret. Uh, it's a secret. And yeah, I don't want it to be a secret. I'm proud of, oh, I love oh, him. I'm happy for you. What's his name? Because what's his first name? Um, uh, Jaron. Oh, I, I like I, that. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. I feel like a good relationship is such a good deposit into one's emotional bank. Like I it, didn't know this, Megan. I didn't oh, know. I, I mean, it's, it's been wonderful. so crazily. I really, you know, talk about talk about the stories that we tell ourselves. So much of my life has been. um losing myself and finding myself over and over again and hitting 15 different rock bottoms and kind of bouncing back up. And, and I really thought of myself as that girl that was single forever and that I didn't need a man. And I had so many, so much kind of damage and trauma around those relationships and, and being in what I feel is it's a very healthy, loving, just, I didn't know how much of a difference it makes. I didn't, I Mm. underestimated it because I didn't have very many models of it in my life. Mm -hmm. So I just Mm -hmm. was very jaded and cynical about relationships. And when we first started dating the first time, I cried every day. I had no (sighs) idea how to deal with intimacy. I ran from it. I did, I just did not know. I didn't know how to, give it. I didn't know how to receive it. I didn't know. I didn't trust it. I, and then 
we took that break and he did a lot of, you know, his own work and time and it really did come down to timing. And when, then when we got back together, it was really, we were just never apart again. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, um, a, a kind of a miracle, really. I, I didn't, weirdly, one of the ways, reasons that I trusted so much is because it's so not something I feel like I'm manipulating in my, in my past, in many relationships, I felt like there was always this power dynamic and I was trying to manipulate the situation or manipulate the man, or it, it felt very insidious and kind of squirrely. You know, I felt, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's, I've never talked about any of this stuff publicly ever. Um, I've talked about feeling like I, I was manipulative as a woman, but I just, with him, it feels so pure. There's just no sketchiness. You know, it's, I want, I want it to, I value that, um, the, that core of our relationship. Well, I really feel like now this is when everything, everything grows because like, I, I do think that having a healthy love relationship in your life, especially with a partner, but it could be with a friend, it could be you know, somebody else, but especially with a, with a sexual romantic and life partner that just, it's like the rocket ship, you know, that yeah. it's like, it's, I won't say that it's not, it's that no one can hurt you because you can still be hurt, but man, they can hurt you a lot less. It takes a yeah. lot more, a lot more to really ding, ding you up, you know, is it's like, I, I remember after many low moments over the past few years, looking around and saying, you know, if, if this is, my floor or my ceiling, right? Like that I'm with Doug and I've got these three kids. Good. I'm good. That's just yeah. fine by me. And, and I felt that for years. I do think we put too little time into nurturing relationships without, because we, we fa fail to realize how important they are to overall yeah. happiness. So I'm Luckily, thrilled for you, but he, yeah. he doesn't like the nudes, I guess. Is that he wants you to just stick with what you put out there? No, it had nothing to do with him. He actually didn't. He actually never said anything about it. He oh. it was all me just feeling like I was evolving and changing. Oh. And oh. Uh, no, he never he was he was never. Um, I'm sure he had his own feel like this is the beauty of marrying a licensed marriage and family therapist <laughs> is that he knows how to do his own work. And he definitely, um, he just, we're very much about allowing us to grow individually. And he never, I felt like I was kind of already pulling away from it because it just felt like it served this time and 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 I just didn't it wasn't like I ever needed to do it I wanted to do it and then mm -hmm. I just stopped wanting to do it you know and, and mm -hmm. that that was really it I've I've always done what I wanted to do I never wanted to feel like I had to do like had to post nudies or had to I always it was always on my own terms a lot of it was just taking like I said I wrote a whole piece about it in Playboy that I actually think is still up and it's all the what I learned from being, you know, sharing nudes online and being part of it was also just taking control. I was very this was at the dawn of being able to send a man a nudie. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't have any clue how this would all play out. But I just wanted to take control of that. I didn't want anyone to be able to post nudies that 
I didn't, mm. I didn't want to live in fear of that. So part of me was so like, you're I'm like, just going to take here control it is. of that. Have at it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I also just, it was, it's a lie. I mean, there's like 15 different pieces. I could talk to you for two hours just about what I learned about myself, what I reclaimed, what, um, wh- all of it. And, and then just really, I think being in a loving, intimate relationship has, I feel again, it's like going on, going back and saying, Oh, I didn't know that there were double standards. This is like me be coming to this very naive realization of, Oh, a loving and intimate relationship can <laughs> give you, <laughs> it can be very so, uplifting. Yeah, it can be very uplifting <laughs> and stabilizing. <laughs> I'm obviously very hesitant about all of this. And the fact that I'm even talking about it is actually really good. But he, I think that again, I, I default to, this is not about us. He has been through so much on his own. He has grown and lifted it, uplifted himself out of stuff. And we are both very late bloomers. And I think one of the, the lies that I've told myself in all of my rock bottoms is that I was too old, whether I was 20 or 25 to really make something of myself. And if anything, I think that he's just a really necessary voice for young men. Just having somebody who's kind of a rational, just pretty common sense. And he has a lot of street smarts too. I don't know. I just, I feel my personal and very biased opinion is that um, the world could use his voice out there too. So Mm. listen, here's to late bloomers and second chances. (laughs) I'm all for it. Great partnerships. Good, good yeah. luck to both of you. It's, gosh, Thank it's been you. a pleasure getting to know you. This is the first of many, I hope, Bridget. I hope Between so, too. Us. Thank you, Meg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was really fun, and I I really appreciate I I don't know. There's something about... Uh, you're an amazing interviewer just in general. You're just amazing at what you do, but there's something to just as a woman, I'm so often interviewed by men that I do. I mean, I cried twice and I never cry when I'm being interviewed. So I, it, that's a testament to you allowing me to feel um, safe and being kind of, there is something about just that, you know, female bond, I think. Thank you for saying that. It means a lot to me. And if I if I did provide that space for you, it's it's minuscule in comparison to the feeling you gave me that day. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.